Well, you guys, the older I get, the more I realize there really are two types of people in this world. The type of people who like to follow the rules <laughs> and the type of people who don't care so much about following the rules. And I bet we have both represented in this room today, right? Yes? Rule followers, are you here? Come on. Okay. How about this? Rule followers, I want you to, to clap and raise your hand right now. Yeah, it's good. Um, I'm a rule follower. I'm a rule follower. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little picture about what this has looked like in my life. Um, so at our church, there's a nursery. And, and when we've brought our kids into that nursery, um, here's how this looks. There's a door that says in, into the little drop-off area. And then there's a door that says out, back into the hallway. And I'm going in the indoor. And my family makes fun of me because I will not go in the outdoor, even if nobody's around and if it's more convenient. I'm going in the indoor. Also, um, I like a good rule book, like games and card games and board games, that kind of thing. I love reading the rule book. I love to, to get on the same page with the intended way that a game has been meant to play. Even Uno. <laughs> the other day we were playing Uno and I got the rule book out and my family was like, what are you doing, Dad? And I just, you know, Uno of all things, right? The, the card that you lay down literally tells you what to do. <laughs> I'm getting the rule book out. And here's the thing, guys, when there aren't clear rules, I like to make them up. I like to make them up, you know? And then what I do is I expect everybody else around me to, to follow those unwritten rules. Anybody else in that boat? I realize my, my life revolves around rules and, and the predictability they provide and the control that I get to feel. I really realized it when I got married. I married somebody who was sort of the opposite of me in many ways. She would call herself uh, a go with the flow kind of person. And I would call her a go and let chaos in kind of person. <laughs> you guys, the Jewish people of Jesus' time, their lives revolved around certain rules as well. You know, we know that, that not only um, do they learn the, the, the Old Testament law, the Torah, at an early age, but the Talmud became a thing, right? That's at the center of their, their life. This is a document that included the laws of Moses and a bunch of other writings, a bunch of other writings that served as explanations and expansions of those rules. So in other words, you guys, in the time of Jesus, they had rules about the rules, I feel like I would get in, I would fit in pretty well back then. But the question I want us to explore together today is, is what did Jesus think about all of this? What was his relationship to the Torah? This is what we're exploring today. And um, this year in chapel, you know, we're talking about thy kingdom come. That's our theme this year, the mission and the movement of Jesus, right? And as we think about that, I like this picture of the Venn diagram where, where God's redemptive work really is all about how he has brought the kingdom here to earth and now we live in this place that's the already and not yet, this overlap part, right? Lately, as Dayton and I have been aiming to anchor us into this theme, we've been learning from the life of Jesus um, what life in the kingdom is like. And we've been focusing lately on the Sermon on the Mount. And now we come across a section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew in chapter 5 that, that gets at this idea of what was Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law. 
By the way, this morning, we're going to read a lot of scripture together, and I want to paint a picture for you, and this picture comes from scripture itself, and we're going to start here in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew chapter 5. This is a mini section of teaching um, within the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is acknowledging, he's commenting on his relationship to the Old Testament law. I'm going to be reading selections from this passage in Matthew 5. You've heard it said that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And you've heard it said um, that you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Skipping down to 38. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. You have heard the law that says in verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So what's Jesus doing here? What's happening? Is, is Jesus, is he undermining the law? Is he replacing the law? Uh, is he reinstating it? Is he refreshing it? Is he minimizing it? Is Jesus abolishing the law? Well, let's back up a bit. Before this, you have heard that the law says stuff. Jesus provides a little introduction in verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. Okay, so that's his way of saying, okay, listen up. Because I think at this point, the people who were listening to Jesus and had been around Jesus, they were probably wondering, Jesus, why have you come? Jesus had been saying all these subversive things, and they were wondering. They were probably thinking, you know, Jesus is suggesting this like whole new way of thinking and living. Our lives are centered around the Torah. Are we now to abandon this way of life? Don't misunderstand why I have come. And then he says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Sigh of relief. And then he says, no, I have come to accomplish their purpose. Uh, What? (laughs) What does that mean? So what is the purpose of the law? I want to explore this together, and we're going to look at kind of um, a a high overview summary of the uh, Old Covenant this morning. And to do that, first I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn uh, away to serve and worship other gods, then I, will warn, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Paul comments on the Old Covenant as well in a lot of places, but in Romans 7 he says, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So you see the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, it was all about showing us how sinful we are. It was all about providing a standard of holiness, cultivating the mind and the heart of God's people 
for where to look to discern God's will for how to live as a human in his world, to provide a pathway to righteousness. So, cool, God, thanks for this list of rules. We got this. That's what I would have said. (laughs) I got this, God. We're good. Not so fast, right? How did that work out for the Israelites? They failed. They failed time and time again. And we're not unlike them. We're flaky. We're unfaithful. We know what's expected of us, and yet we fail too. And Jesus even reminds us here in Matthew 5, verse 48, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what do we do? God calls us to be perfect, to be holy like he is, but humanity has proven over and over and over again that we really, really, really stink at this. We really are not good at being holy. Well, God had another idea too. He gave us the old covenant. God had a glimmer of of a, of a dream for humanity, and, and, and it's the new covenant. The new covenant, and it's prophesied in the Old Testament in the prophets, in Jeremiah 31, we see it. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Catch this. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a different covenant. Jesus ushers it in, right? Luke 22, after his supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Paul goes, goes further and explains the nature of, of the new covenant. Colossians 2, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, so why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's what? Their evil desires. They provide no help in affecting the true heart of a person. You see, what Jeremiah prophesied, what Paul explains, and and what Jesus himself enacted, it's that God wants us to, to understand the heart of the law. That in essence, the purpose of the law is is not outward obedience, but the heart posture behind the obedience. It's much more about the inward than about the outward. You know, a lot of things are like this, more about the inward um, and invisible and less about the outward and easily seen. I think about art. Art is an example, right? A piece of art is, is much more than, than what we can see, usually. Like, it's more than paint on a canvas. It's more than um, uh, clay fired and glazed, or whatever medium an artist chooses. But rather, art is more, in essence, about the heart behind it, the intention the expression, the mood, the story, the symbolism, what it, ev- what it evokes in us. 
I'd like to spend a little time on this and I'd like to show you what I'm talking about. For those of you who were at the 515, 516 film festival last spring, um, I don't know, some of you might have been at something called the 515 film festival too, but uh, at the 516 film festival there was um, a lot of great art. We saw a lot of great art that night. And I want us to watch one of the films that one of our students has produced. And, and, and I want us to take this in as a work of art because it is. And then after that, we're gonna invite the creator of this film up and um, we just, we're just gonna talk about it a little bit. So let's, let's take a look and watch. So joining me now on stage is Natasha Nolet, uh, the, the creator of that short film. Natasha, thanks for being here with, with us today and sharing a little bit about that, that work of art, which um, there's so much there. there I, I feel like there's so much there. Um, in your film, it seems like there's, there's a lot going on under the surface even, right? Can you share about, why, about what this film means and what you're hoping to communicate with it? Yeah, hello. Um, yeah, so the film Wayfarer, uh, it's primarily about the five stages of grief. And you can kind of see that a little bit throughout the film uh, and in the credits uh, is kind of where it's like explicitly stated. Uh, but it talks about, you know, the boy on the surface level, you know, you see just him trying to find his parents, uh, but the implied meaning is that you know he's going through these different stages and you know from denial to acceptance and the accepting of of moving on of accepting that you know his parents are dead and he is also he's dead as well uh, and it's kind of just it's talking about that so hmm. so there is a lot going on there is there there's is a lot, lot <laughs> um, so often in art there's there's more there's more than what kind of meets the eye. And can you talk about uh, the certain colors and techniques that you used in, in making that film that, that carry important symbolism? Yeah, so color was a huge thing. Hmm. Um, as we see kind of like in anger, uh, there's like these bright reds and oranges and those are often associated with like passion and anger. Uh, and so that's why I kind of chose those and fire and lava, you know, it's, it's kind of mad, right? And, um, and you can kind of see it in sorrow. So in the graveyard scene, I chose very dull colors to kind of represent that hopelessness that he feels before going into acceptance, which has the golden hues and the river, uh, which the river represents the River Jordan, uh, as we hear in the song. And um, the gold kind of represents kind of our interpretation of heaven, because often, I don't know about you, but when I think of heaven, I think of the golds. Uh, and then like also the serpent that you see in anger, uh, there is like a secondary story that you see uh, where uh, you kind of see how the protagonist, the boy died. He died by um, being hit by a car. And so the serpent is kind of, it's, uh, it's like a, a car light. And so he's very mad at the car light. It's the last thing he remembers, the last thing he saw. And so he's very, he expresses a lot of anger towards it. Uh, and so that's kind of like just a little nudge to the secondary story that's behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. It's incredible. Um, 
I guess lastly, what, what's your hoped for sort of takeaway for a viewer of, of the film? Yeah, so uh, entertainment, of course, I want uh, people to be entertained when they watch the film, uh, but I also want them to kind of ponder uh, because it is about the five stages of grief and it's about death, right? And, and that as Christians, right, we have hope after death. Like the song itself, Poor Wayfaring Stranger, uh, the, the chorus that is used um, is, um, I'm going there to see my savior. I'm going there no more to Rome, just going over the Jordan, just going to home. And it kind of talks about, right, I want people to take away that, you know, our after death, death is not the end for us. Uh, we have something beyond death. We have, you know, we have Christ. And so kind of being able to take that away uh, from the film is I would love it if people got that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So. Uh, Natasha, thank you. Can we give Natasha a hand for joining me up here today? Thank you. Appreciate you and your art, Natasha. That was fantastic. Well, you guys, God had, has always been primarily interested in capturing our heart, right? He made us, he knows that who we are, our essence isn't so much our medium, our outward behavior, our actions, the parts of us that are easily seen, but rather our essence is our heart. And God, in his redemptive plan, that's exactly where he aims, you guys. That's the target of his mission and his movement in the world, which culminated in Christ. Christ is not abolishing the Old Testament law, but rather he's bringing it to life in the hearts of his followers. That's why Christ can say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery, right? Because it's always been about the heart. That's why later um, uh, we, see, we see in Matthew, um, Jesus talks about the Pharisees. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Before we end today, I just wanna, I wanna help make it practical in the few minutes we have remaining, I wanna offer two truths. Christ brings the law to life in our hearts, I think, in, in two fundamental ways. The first is, it's relational. It's relational. Let's look again at Jeremiah 31. It says, I'll put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's about a relationship, right? God's not a taskmaster. God is a lover. God is not far away. He's close, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God's not a condemner. He's a forgiver. It's relational. It's relational and it's also supernatural. Right? This being made new, this sanctification, this bringing the law to life in our hearts it results from the supernatural presence and power of the Holy Spirit working in a Christian's life. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And also Ephesians 20, which I love. Now all glory to God, who is able, to, able through his mighty power at work, where? At work within us. To accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. You guys, I want, I want to give you an invitation here as I close. An invitation to, 
to sit and to think about this a little bit more, we have this beautiful space on campus, Nazareth Chapel. And one thing that is really, really cool is, is Nazareth Chapel in and of itself is a work of art. And there's a lot going on there too. There's a lot going on in there with symbolism and, and meaning. But here's what I want you to do. If you would take me up on my invitation, go and find a quiet moment in that room. Maybe at sunrise, and I'll explain why in a second. But have a seat. And, and you should know that as you're facing forward, the windows on your right are all the Old Testament story, the stained glass windows. The windows on your left are all the New Testament story. Okay? So what you have is every day, and, if, and the way the building is situated on our earth, every day the sun sets on this side of the building over the Old Covenant. And every morning, you guys, the sun rises on the New Covenant. Isn't that awesome? That's really cool. And so my invitation to you is to, is to take up that opportunity and go and sit there as maybe the sun rises on the new covenant. And let that be a reminder to you of, of the beautiful restorative work that God is doing in this world. Let that be a reminder that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that works in you to produce the obedience. And let it inspire you that you are a part of the new covenant story of God, helping to bring about his kingdom, one softened, obedient heart at a time. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the truth that, that you have provided a way, God, in your redemptive plan, your restoration of all things, you've provided a way for us to be with you. God, and it's, it's not up to our own trying or effort. God, it's, it's within us. It's you. It's your spirit in us. Thank you for that. Thank you for your forgiveness and your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys.